0: If you think about why companies ultimately fail,
1: product market fit is a big reason. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing.
2: If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, this podcast is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman.
1: And I'm Karina Owens, coming to you from the Gong Studios. We have got such an awesome conversation to share with you today. Dani and I had the privilege of speaking with Latney Conant, Chief Market Officer at Six Sense and author of the book, No Forms, No Spam, No Cold Calls, which just had its second edition release. She's had a fast career starting from accounting, worked her way into sales as a quota carrier, went into marketing, and now she's labeled herself as CMO, which we would most commonly refer to in our space as chief marketing officer. But she actually intentionally worked with the C-suite at Sixth Sense to make her title chief market officer because she really wanted to reflect not just to the revenue team or the go-to-market team, but to the board that the purpose of what she's doing is to keep a pulse on the market of the buyer. What was your take on her thoughts about how she worked with her partner Mark, who's the chief revenue officer at Sixth Sense?
2: I mean, for me, I'm so glad that you drew attention to the fact that she has dropped the ING to her title and that that inherently consciously or subconsciously being something that pigeonholes a function that is so much more than marketing. Yes, that falls within the market role, but I appreciate you and her celebrating the expansion of what falls within that bucket that the business unit of marketing perhaps is not given suitable credit for bringing to any organization. So in addition to being just this awesome, vivacious, effusive, effervescent, fun presence on Reveal, really excited to share with the listeners her new outlook on that function.
1: This is going to be such a good one. Let's dive right in. Well, Latney, we are thrilled to have you here today, and I think for several reasons, but one of them being that you have had quite a vast career. Um, Some might even say an unconventional rise to where you are today as the chief market officer at Sixth Sense. But before we kind of dive into where you are today, I'd love if you could share with our listeners your story. I know you've started as an accountant before you had this vast career that led to sales and revenue and marketing. So I'd love if you could share with us your early starts.
0: So I was in college and I knew I was going to have to pay for loans. And so I just, I mean, it's pretty easy. I just looked at a board of starting salaries and jobs that paid a signing bonus. (laughs) and accounting wasn't the highest, but they all paid a signing bonus. (laughs) And, um, and so that was that. Uh, I wasn't a very good accountant though, because I'm dyslexic. And I remember they sent me out on this job and, you know, they send you out with this huge briefcase and that thing weighs so much. And then they give you these pencils, red pencils like this, um, and they said, this is called a Sally. And I'm like, what's a Sally? And they said, Sally is same as last year. So all you gotta do is you gotta look at everything we did last year and just basically check off that nothing's changed <laughs> and everything's the same and we're good. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be so boring. I, I So I got through one Sally and then I was like, I gotta get out of here. Um, And I wanted to get into consulting because I felt like that would be cooler. And so we had these training credits. So I was like, I'm not going to take any of the accounting training. I'm going to take all the consulting training. So I took all the training and, um, and I specified in B2B marketplaces and this, and the Ariba product, which was, I kind of became an expert at this marketplace product. And I was one of the only people at the firm who knew anything about it. So I called the partner who ran the Ariba practice. And I said, I've got more experience on this thing than anyone on your team. Can I please join your practice? Uh, and the rest was history. So I joined the Ariba practice. I met a lot of fabulous people. Um, went client-side for a while, then ended up actually at Arriba, And that's where I got my first shot at being in sales was, was actually at Arriba.
1: I love that. And it's it's something that I feel like shows that you have such a, a great amount of grit and determination. Um, how did you find sales was for you initially? Where did you get some of those foundational skill sets? Was it by you know, reading? Was it from taking some coaching? Did you have a really fabulous mentor? What did you feel like in those early years really set you up for success as a sales leader?
0: So I sucked <laughs> when I started. <laughs> I was like so bad. So I thought I was going to be really good because I knew I had so much domain expertise. So I thought it was going to be this natural progression. But there's a big difference between consulting and, and selling, right? Consulting, you're the smartest person in the room. You're the expert. You talk, you present. And sales is listening, questioning, making them feel like they're the smartest uh, person in the room. So I hired a sales coach and um, just on my own dime, because I'm like, I, I kind of suck at this. And I really, I knew I could be good if I just learned the art, and um, and so I had this sales coach, and and he took me through all these different programs. One was Sandler, and 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 it was it was an audio version of Sandler, and I just I'll never forget him. You know, you hear the original Sandler on this audio program talking about you know, the upfront contract and, and talking about digging into the pains and and talking about buyers are liars. (laughs) I'll take a yes. I'll take a no, but I won't take, I'll think it over. And like, you know, I, I still hear Sandler sometimes (laughs) in my mind. And, and so that was just, it it was a, a new world that I, I thought that I knew, but I didn't at all. So I had to, I had to learn.
2: So thinking about where your career exists today, Lanny, and where it started, I mean, we are leagues apart and you started with this foothold in accounting, largely inspired. It sounds like by economic potential. And generationally right now, I think we have a very different demographic that is entering the workforce, having been, whether we say, coddled or they've been gently ushered through life and this belief well if something isn't perfect if it's not right then go do something else and i'm wondering through all the chutzpah and the moxie that it took for you to whether it's jump to the consulting side of arthur anderson or hire your own sales coach you yourself have taken all these steps to arrive at what i have to suspect is a more fulfilling uplifting career the question i'm asking is in advising our younger early in career listeners. Should they follow the money and trust that that will eventually lead them to where they want to go? Should they pursue their passion or those not mutually exclusive and there's some middle ground or gray area as they look to find what is that passionate career path for them?
0: I mean, I have always needed to make money. I mean, I have a theme song, Money Can't Buy Happiness, But It Can Buy You a boat." It's like an awesome country song. (laughs)
2: And boating is very fun. I'm very it happy. It's very fun. Yeah. So
0: I think I just always knew. Like I, I grew up, and the friend group that I had was much more affluent than we were. And so I just looked around, and I'm like, I want some of that. And I knew I was going to have to to create that. And I think money, it can't buy happiness, but it can buy a boat and, and a fun fun lifestyle. But I also had a lot of instability. And I think um, for me, I I felt that it was a way to stabilize and take control of my life by feeling like I could make money. You know, that's my, I guess I would say relationship with money. And what's interesting is, you know, I have two, two boys and, you know, they've grown up very different than I grew up. we talk a lot about money, With our kids, you know, they're about one of them is about to turn sixteen. It's not assumed he's going to get a car. (laughs) Like, like how we how how do we afford the car? What does that mean? You know, I think as a woman, there was definitely this feeling of, am I going to be like a bad parent? Am I am I not doing the right thing? Should I be staying home with my kids? You know, I've never made a lunch, so my kids aren't getting lunches with notes for me. Um, if it's a soccer game during the week, probably not going to be there. What I do or what I what I used to do is I used to say, okay, this is our lifestyle with me working. I don't make your lunch, you buy lunch. The games on the weekend, I'm there during the week, not, right? But I could quit. And if I were to quit, you know, I'd make your lunch and be at all the games. But spring break is a staycation. Skiing out west, yeah, that's not happening. Like just give up, you know, <laughs> you're going to the trash mound with man-made snow in the Midwest, right? And so we just like went through and showed this lifestyle and the trade-offs, and this lifestyle and the trade-offs. And and then we would vote. And every year my kids would be like, You get back to work, Mom! <laughs> keep going and make sure you book skiing out West, you know? <laughs> so, so I just think like we've, I, I don't know. I try to have a very like straight conversation with my kids and, and about, you know, what lifestyle do you want? And there's no judgments you can have, but what lifestyle do you want? And what do those trade-offs look like? And, and how does that play out? So I don't know. I, I guess I feel like people got to live in reality. So I just, I just, Try to live in reality.
1: I love your perspective and the fact that you're providing that transparency for your sons in particular so early on, Um, because I think the reality is women in particular in the workforce just don't have as much leadership positions like the one you hold today. And, you know, I know you recently shared on LinkedIn that women currently hold only 14% of U.S. board positions. That's certainly not shocking, but I think that it's something that we need to continuously shed some light on, shed some reality on. You make up that 14%. So I would love to know from your perspective, what can we do to bring more quality to the boardroom and why is this topic so near and dear to your heart?
0: So the reason it's near and dear to my heart, and there's there's two parts to what I'm passionate about. Um, Part one is obviously just women in leadership in general, because I believe if you see her, you can be her. And so no one thought that they could run a four minute mile and no one had run a four minute mile. And then one person runs a four minute mile and everybody starts to be able to run four minute miles, right? Now there's no times over over four minutes. That concept of if, if you see her, you can be her, I think is really important. And it, it's not just important for women and girls, it's important for Men and boys, right? Like my my boys are never gonna think that it's weird that there's a boss lady. Like they're used to boss ladies. <laughs> um, it, that's just how it is, right? So, so I think it's it's first of all that which is really important, and um, and and that's gonna help our economy, by the way, right? Like like more people contributing to the economy is is a good thing, and and it contributing in a meaningful way. So that's part one. Part two, though, is very specific to the role of of marketers and to some degree sellers as well, because not only are boards typically not very gender and ethnically diverse, they're not super skill set diverse. So most boards are financiers, right? And and that's not bad. Like you need strong financiers like, and, and they ask great questions and uh, that's a really important part, but there's very limited market background. And if you think about why companies ultimately fail, product market fit is a big reason. So you can have a great product, no market, you're toast. The market can be amazing, but you don't have a differentiated product also toast. And so I think having a seat at the table in, you know, for if if I'm a company, I, I, why wouldn't you want your board to have someone who really understands market? And I think then selfishly that helps most of these podcast listeners because we get fired a lot. Marketing and sales execs, we get fired a lot. It's not always our execution. A lot of times it is product market market. So having someone in the boardroom that sees and understands that and sees and understands our role in a more significant way, it's going to make the companies more successful. And I think it also is going to help with some of the instability in in being a sales and and marketing professional.
1: 100%. I think if if anyone is actually paying attention to your title too, they'll notice that it's chief market officer. So we say CMO, but there's a very clear distinction there. And I think that's clearly coming from the way you just positioned yourself um, and the way you think we should be showing up into these boardrooms and these conversations.
0: Well, I think it's interesting. You don't call it the chief financing officer. (laughs) <laughs> and he doesn't show up or see, she doesn't show up and say, guys, I closed the books in three days and then I did this and then I did this and then I made another spreadsheet and then I did another spreadsheet and and I made a pivot. Yay. Um, and a sensitivity analysis. Like, no, that's not how how the chief finance officer shows up. And so, you know, my challenge to myself And to others in this seat is that ing sort of makes you show up saying here's all my mqls and then i ran this event and it was the best event it was the coolest and i love events don't get me wrong you know and then we did this and then we did that and oh my god these ads right no like own the domain and the domain is market and so trying to really show up and i think and that's i think about that every day how do i show up and represent our market. And my activities, you got to get activities done. Don't get me wrong. But I don't need to be talking about them ad nauseum. I can be talking and focusing those activities to a higher cause, which is around the market.
1: Absolutely. And and you talk a lot too from that perspective about knowing your number. And you also (laughs) mentioned.
0: (laughs) Yes. yeah, And
1: finding the red. I would love for you to, to dive in deeper. What do you mean by finding the red?
0: I think that a big part of being confident and credible is being able to admit where things are not going well and your plan to fix them. I know as for me as a leader, when I do a one-on-one and someone tells me everything's great, it's awesome. I'm thinking in my mind two things. I'm thinking either they have no idea what's going on <laughs> and they don't have a handle on it, so they're incredibly naive, and that's a problem. Or I'm thinking they're full of crap and they're bullshitting me, and that's a problem. It's really important that y- you create a space amongst your first team, which is the your executive team, as well as your, you know, your functional team. That I, we are always going to have things that we have to go and fix, and that's our job is to identify the things that we need to fix and be fixing on them all the time. And so I think it's like, you got to create vulnerability and, and, the, and the, the mentality that it's okay. Because we've all been on those teams where everyone's like, look at me and I did this and I did this and, and, and no one's really addressing the problems and there's always problems. And so I think just coming to that realization, creating that space, and then always working on what needs to get fixed and being very transparent just builds a better company.
2: So I can remember presenting a deck to our president and we had a just banner quarter performance and how we measure performance and enablement is always a little murky and abstract. And what you were saying about you are not the chief marketing officer, you are the chief market officer. and breaking away unconventionally and doing things differently is such a refreshing take because I look at the stigma that follows enablement and thinking, "Oh my god, I want to do it differently, I want to do it better, I want to live in the data." And yet, we had this quarter and I was like, "Oh my god, we've got killer results." And I remember going in and kind of getting blown out of the sky by the president is like, "This is great, but what does this tell me?" you've nailed it. Bullshit. No, like there's still people who are missing quota. Where are the gaps? And it was one of these seminal moments in my career was like, you're right. If everything's going great, who gives a shit, but we got to go actually put out other fire. So that story really, really resonates with me. The question I have for you, Latney is in this dynamic that you facilitate, whether it's with your directs and the executive team, or even culturally that transcends the entire team, how do you safely and constructively give people that no sugar hard hitting feedback because you don't want to disenfranchise them. You don't want to necessarily put them on the stand, make them feel, this is an indictment. I'm here to sabotage you or sideswipe you with gotchas. But you do want them to lean into this idea of we're not perhaps, I don't know, all peaches and cream all the time. In fact, maybe we want to celebrate uncovering the pockets of deficiency or underperformance. What is your secret sauce to having that no sugar candor?
0: I love solving problems, like that's fun. We we obsess over winning. So I think it's like a culture that you create of bring it on. Let's find it. Let's find it. Let's fix it. And then celebrating when we run a, a play that's successful. Like I think it's just how you set the tone.
1: And I think you do a really great job of that. I've heard you talk a lot about your partnership with Mark. And so much of of the partnership with your sales org is aligning your goals. So sharing the same goals, sharing the same KPIs. Um, You know, as an account-based marketer, that's what I think bridges the best success is having our team, account-based marketers be seen or marketers generally be seen as an extension of the deal team. But so much of that happens by having those shared goals and shared KPIs. What would be your perspective on how you've built? Uh, success in this way, either with Mark or previously in a previous life?
0: Well, particularly with the account-based marketing role, I think that you have to have shared goals, but then great transparency about how you're tracking to those and where things aren't tracking. So back to the finding the red. And, And here's why. When people come to me and they say, oh my God, sales wants us to do all these dumb things. I always kind of hold the mirror up and I'm like, you've created a void. Like when you create a void, people are going to fill the void with a to-do list of really dumb stuff, right? And so let's talk about this. Like, because I, what I find is like sales salespeople don't want to do marketing. They, they just want to like make their number. And when they start doing marketing, it means that something's not right. Something's missing. And sometimes they're, they're not maybe. So, so you got to come with your data and say, I get it here's where our problems are. And here's some ideas to go and get after that. And if you are always in front of that, you're not going to end up with an island of misfit toys of activities that you have to do because sales thinks they're smart. And so that's the kind of ABX, like, like to me, it's like always being out in front of it and then getting feedback and
1: improving. But
0: you don't, you never want to be a short order cook. That means something's really
1: wrong. Y'all know me, I am obsessed with sales and marketing alignment. So it's awesome to hear Latney and Mark's relationship and how closely aligned their goals and KPIs are. But it's not just anecdotal that marketing and sales team should be focusing on alignment. The proof is in the data. We all know that meeting customer expectations is our main driver to more revenue. According to Salesforce, 76% of customers expect consistent interactions across departments, yet only 54 say it generally feels like sales and marketing teams don't share information. See how important that alignment is? It's crucial to ensure your teams are not only communicating, but totally aligning. Let's hear more from Latney. Well, you recently released the second edition of your book, No Forms, No Spam, No Cold Calls. Why update the book now?
0: So it's interesting. Uh, there's a couple reasons. Um, the first is somewhat practical. So we launched the first edition and we self published, and I didn't really think, I didn't know that it was going to be very popular or not. I mean, we just we sort of put it together. I had I had been doing a lot of writing, and it was all in my head anyway, and it was stuff that I was. Writing and speaking about anyway, um, so I, I thought if I thought it would sort of just be like a playbook for our customers, and it ended up being very very popular. And it's very hard to distribute internationally, so we knew we needed a like proper publisher um, to be able to help with some of the international distribution. So that was a really practical aspect of it. And then the second thing I realized is everybody wanted a chapter with Mark's perspective, you know, crazy marketing lady, all these ideas and, and the marketers would, would be like, I need something that I can send to my CRO. Who's not going to read this whole thing. Just fine to get them excited. And so we wanted to add that sales perspective. And then I also just found there were some things, you always miss a couple things. And some some things weren't a miss, but I didn't like hit hard enough. So I created almost like bonus material, like, please, (laughs) this is really important. And some of the things around like the processes that I define and talk about in the book, I didn't hit hard enough that just because you define and set the process up doesn't mean people are going to do it sadly, but that's just how it is. And so I've learned a lot about how you inspect and flag along the way. And so I talk a lot about that, like setting up the proper inspection to catch when the process isn't getting followed and not getting followed to the degree it needs to get followed.
1: I I love it. And I love that Mark, your your CRO, was able to contribute to that. I know he's a, a big fan of yours and it really highlights again and underlines, underscores the need for that close alignment and that close partnership. With that, with also the, the things that you went back and you wanted to like highlight or, or double down on, what would be the one thing out of those edits or things that you realized that you feel like you'd want to shout from the rooftops for every go-to-market leader to pay attention to?
0: in the book i describe how we set our pipeline quotas you know i go through that process and how and and looking at asps and cycle times and conversions and that's where when when we talk about finding the red it's often the, the absolute number is often a symptom of a conversion problem and and so we we walk through that but I I didn't sort of start at the very top, which is, I believe that marketers and what I see out in the, the world is marketers are still thinking about pipeline and managing the pipeline only around quote unquote marketing sourced pipeline. So they apply all this rigor to that. And then what about all of the rest of the pipeline? And so I would shout from the rooftop that I think the key is you should be looking at all pipeline and reporting on all pipeline and looking for red by channel, by segment, because the reality is one stage in our funnel is 22 activities. And there's going to be a mix of marketing and sales. For us to win a deal, it's 10 personas. It might not be marketing source is my point all the time. And I think when you look and marketing can have an impact across at all. And when you're just looking through that small, it's like looking at your business through a keyhole, you're just really missing the mark. And so I just highly, highly encourage, you know, be a steward for the pipeline. Um, and, and as a. As a sales leader, like you're really focused on bringing in deals, you it, it is a day to day grind, <laughs> like you're, you're focused on hiring people, ramping people, make it, you know, making sure you have enough quota coverage, do the company a solid and be the person that's like freaking out and obsessing about all of the pipeline. Cause cause it, it creates this weird void where marketing is looking at like anywhere from 30 to call it 40% of the company, but not everything.
1: I would shout that right there with you. I always say the best account-based marketers are the ones that are the stewards of account data. You said it even better, that the best marketers or revenue go-to-market leaders are the ones that are stewards of the pipeline. Beautiful.
2: Well, Latney, we're looking at the clock and I don't know if there are enough words to convey our gratitude for you very generously sharing your wisdom with the listeners of Reveal. If you've listened to the podcast before, you know that we close out with the exact same question, Uh which typically given our audience historically has been made up of a disproportionate number of sales leaders. But today we have a (laughs) market leader. So we'll tinker with the question ever so slightly. But Latney, if you could describe market, in one word, what would it be?
0: Being attuned. And I know that that's two words, so I've already lost this game. <laughs> you have to be this, like when I say being it, you really need to be super tuned in to all of these market signals at all times. So you can translate that into making sure the company is successful.
1: Latney, thank you so much. Um, I know I will be continuing to follow you and learn from you. If others wanted to do the same or if others wanted to find the latest edition of your book, what would be the best way to follow, connect, uh, or grab that latest copy?
0: Yeah. So the book is no forms, no spam, no cold calls. It's on Amazon. And if you want to connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn and always happy to make new connections and and chat with fellow revenue leaders.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Latney, And thank you for being uh, that role model for all of us to be able to see and relate to. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, head on over to gong.io. If you like what you heard, we would love for you to give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.